Paul Glenn's Falls. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Wednesday, December 20th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Governor Hochul has signed a bill to create a commission that'll study whether New Yorkers who are descendants of slaves should receive monetary reparations. Here in New York, there was a slave market where people bought and sold other human beings with callous disregard. It happened right on Wall Street. A public library in the Southern Adirondacks is getting closer to reopening after a controversy over a drag queen story hour that never even happened. Three new trustees were sworn in last night. Also, an advocate for the Adirondacks attended the U.N. climate talks in Dubai to spotlight the role of the park and other U.S. wilderness areas play in drawing down the carbon dioxide that causes climate change. We are signaling to our national government, not just the world, that part of that solution with regards to aggressive action to sequester and capture more carbon begins with a huge eco-asset like the Adirondacks. We'll listen back to a conversation with a psych professor who focuses on nostalgia about dealing with grief around the holidays. And our book reviewer Betsy Capis stops by to share her thoughts about the debut novel of Ottawa writer Kai Thomas. All of that is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Mountain Orthotic and Prosthetic Services, a full-service practice committed to providing care for patients of all ages with offices in Lake Placid, Plattsburgh, and Malone. Details and referrals at mountainonp.com. And Blue Seed Studios, Saranac Lake, promoting community involvement in the arts on the web at blucseedstudios.org. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Governor Kathy Hochul has signed new legislation that creates a commission to study reparations. Karen DeWitt reports the group will look at potential monetary reparations for New Yorkers whose ancestors suffered under slavery in the state. The new law establishes a task force to study the impact of slavery on present-day New Yorkers and look at the possibility of paying monetary reparations, as well as examining changing housing policies and reforming a criminal justice system that disproportionately imprisons black and brown people. By signing this bill today, I'm authorizing the creation of a commission, a committee to study what reparations might look like in New York. Hochul says New York often pats itself on the back for being the center of the abolitionist movement in the 1800s, with famous residents including Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and Sojourner Truth, as well as a robust underground railroad. But she says New York's history has a darker side. Before slavery was abolished in the state in 1827, she says 20% of New York City's population was enslaved Africans. 40% of Colonial households owned slaves. Here in New York, there was a slave market where people bought and sold other human beings with callous disregard. It happened right on Wall Street. Even after the North won the Civil War, redlining in white neighborhoods and other forms of segregation kept black and brown New Yorkers from getting ahead economically. Speakers at the announcement included the first African-American woman leader of the state Senate, Andrea Stork Cousins, the black New York State Assembly Speaker, Carl Hastie, and the Reverend Al 
Charles Sharpton. Sharpton credits Hochul for her courage in creating the commission. Where you go and cut deals on Wall Street, our forefathers were put on blocks and sold like a soap. The governor admits that the idea of reparations for slavery, which ended in the U.S. over 150 years ago, is controversial, and she says she struggled with the notion. But she says descendants of slaves need more than just an apology. Hochul says the 2022 mass shooting in her hometown of Buffalo, where a white gunman targeted and killed black shoppers, demonstrates that there's more to be done. I don't want to pretend I didn't have some concerns about this. I know many have. Here's what I do know. Anyone thinks that racism and hatred toward blacks no longer exists? Tell that to the families of the 10 victims in the grocery store and tops at the massacre in Buffalo, who once again, once again, will be staring at empty chairs over their Christmas dinner. Republicans in New York disagree with the Reparations Commission. In a statement, the GOP leader of the state Senate, Minority Leader Robert Ort, called the commission divisive and unworkable. He says the reparations of slavery were paid with the blood and lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans who fought to end slavery during the Civil War. The state of California has created a similar commission. That panel recommended that thousands of dollars be paid to each descendant of slavery to make up for disparities in health care, access to housing, and mass incarceration and policing policies that disproportionately impacted people of color. New York's commission will be required to issue its report one year after its first meeting. That should happen sometime next year. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. A public library in the southern Adirondacks is getting closer to reopening after a controversy over a drag queen story hour that never even happened. The library in Lake Luzerne has been closed for three months after staff and board members resigned. Some said they were being harassed. As Lucy Grindon reports, three new library trustees were sworn in last night. Back in April, the library scheduled a drag queen from Albany to read children's books to kids. Dozens of people showed up at that month's meeting to oppose the event, including a local Baptist pastor who was later elected as a library trustee. The Drag Queen Story Hour was postponed and never rescheduled, but the controversy continued. Over the summer, the librarian said staff were being harassed at work. She and a clerk resigned. Disagreements and frustrations among trustees led some of them to resign, too. By early November, only two trustees remained, not enough to form a quorum to do library business. The State Board of Education had to get involved to appoint three new people. Locals sent in applications. I was so pleased that 11 people cared enough to go through the process. Sarah Dallas, director of the Southern Adirondack Library System, was part of the group that reviewed the applications. They crossed out all the names so they wouldn't know whose application was whose. Dallas says they looked for people who had experience working on teams and who cared about reopening the library. They forwarded top candidates to the Department of Education. A department representative said in an email that state library staff interviewed the candidates and checked their references. Then they presented nominees to the Board of Regents, who approved them. 
Maggie Hartley from Hadley is one of the new trustees. She says she has only one priority, to get the library reopened. The library is vital to the community. It's a place, obviously, for books and where kids learn to read and go to story hour, but it's also a community center. It's a place where there's Wi-Fi and where there are computers and where there's a copier. If I'm working from home and the power goes out, I'm going to the library to work. Hartley says she's optimistic that she and her fellow trustees will be able to work quickly. I do feel like the board has a common goal of getting the library open again. So hopefully we will all move forward and, uh, and work together and uh, get the place reopened. Their first order of business is to get back to searching for new library staff. Lucy Grinden, North Country Public Radio. Listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. It's nine minutes past eight. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, we'll review the novel In the Upper Country by Ottawa writer Kai Thomas. It's an historic tale of African slaves and indigenous people centered on the War of 1812. That conversation and more coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. Music by Dan Berggren, Boston Spa. And a reminder that Northern Light is supported by St. Lawrence Nurseries, Potsdam, accepting orders now through April 12th for cold-hardy fruit and nut trees. Details at slngrow.com. And North Country Children's Museum, Potsdam, with hands-on and minds-on exhibits and programs for children 12 and under and their families. Open Wednesday to Sunday, 10 to 5. Northcountrychildrensmuseum.org. Around the holiday season, we're bombarded with messages to be happy, be with family, and to celebrate. Christine Bacho says for people dealing with grief, it can be extremely lonely. She's a psychology professor at Lemoyne College in Syracuse who specializes in nostalgia. I caught up with her a few years ago, and she started off by talking about why grief and loss are amplified around the holidays. Well, you're absolutely right, and one of the reasons for that is the contrast. In other words, we have grown up expecting holidays to be all happy and the idea of happy holidays is almost the quintessential definition of what a holiday is and so when there's loss or grief associated with or that happens around the holidays the contrast between what we hoped for and what the reality is can be quite shocking there can also be the comparison so 
I think what is created, especially in our culture, is this image that everyone else is enjoying such a happy time. And it's a very isolating kind of lonely feeling to think that I don't fit in now because I can't just walk into that group of people who are laughing and having a good time and making plans when inside I feel like my heart is broken. How how do we comfort people who are dealing with loss and grief? The obvious example would be if you know that someone is grieving, it is so much easier because you can reach out to them and just say, you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Okay, we're all thinking of you, but the problem comes down to not always knowing that someone is hurting. Someone might still be grieving for a loss that occurred a year or two or even three or four years ago. We have, for example, people who undergo an anniversary phenomenon where the holiday might have been the marker that is associated with the loss. And so every holiday they start feeling that sadness and they go through the grieving process all over again. Well, other people might not be at all aware of that or worse. Sometimes people think, oh, but didn't she or he die five years ago? And the implication, even in the tone of their voice is, well, haven't you moved on from that? But someone who has what we refer to as complicated grief, grief that seems to go unabated over long periods of time, they don't find it useful when they're told, well, it's over, just get on with your life. That's not very useful to someone who is experiencing the kind of mourning or grief that doesn't allow them to do that spontaneously on their own. What are some, um, what are some specific ways to cope? I think it's very healthy to have connections with someone who is no longer with us. In some cultural traditions, it's incorporated within the holidays themselves. So, for instance, one tradition at special holiday meals, an empty place setting is set out for the person who is no longer with the family. And by putting that place setting there, it accomplishes a lot of psychological uh, functions. One is it's concrete, it's visible, everyone can see it. So now there's no need to go around reminding people, oh yes, we lost so-and-so last year. But the other function that it serves is it's a concrete link. And there's that connection to people that says, okay, the person is gone, but their memory is not. And we are still connected through the memory. And this gesture of putting the place setting out is my way of saying... I wish I could still invite you to this gathering. I wish you could be seated with us at this dinner party. And all of those emotions are very healthy things. It's very important to remember that the meaning in life is not just about being happy 100% of the time. Sadness, loss, respecting the people that you no longer can interact with physically is a rich part of the fabric of psychological well-being. So, number one, it's nothing to be embarrassed about or to be trying to hide. The fact that you grieve for someone tells every other person how loving you are. So, if you don't have a tradition, it might be a good time to start one. In, so, in the midst of grief and loss, how do we maintain a sense of 
hope or joy or or is that even realistic it is realistic because the main thing about nostalgia is that it transcends the self the individual we don't go through this world alone if we did we wouldn't be grieving the loss of another and so one of the ways to remind ourselves of the joy is to think about what part of yourself is who you are because of that other person because you lived with them or loved them so now as you walk through life without that person they're with you they're inside you and more importantly they transcend you every time when you behave toward others it's almost definite that you're doing that partly because you learned those behaviors those feelings from that person who you ha- are now grieving so they're with you they're with you all the time that was Lemoyne College psychology professor Christine Bacho. We have a fuller conversation with her available at our website ncpr.org. This conversation first aired in 2019. One of Watertown's reservoirs is leaking 400,000 gallons of treated water a day. WWNY-TV reports it's not clear how long it's been leaking. Crews still haven't found where the issue is, even after a company drained the reservoir earlier this month. That company will make recommendations on what to do next to the new city council in January. $500,000 in American Rescue Plan funds are set aside to fix the leak. Watertown's water infrastructure has been facing challenges this year. Back in October, the city experienced a water main break that left many residents with little or no drinkable water for a couple of days. Messina Central High School will have an emergency renovation over the holiday break. A leak in the pipes that pumped heat into the high school building was discovered last month. The Watertown Daily Times reports the school board has approved the $575,000 repair. Construction crews started some work earlier this month. The school's holiday break begins on Friday. Students return January 2nd. The United Nations climate talks in Dubai wrapped up last week. The annual gathering brings together the world's countries to decide what they're going to do to combat climate change. Something big happened. For the first time, countries agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. Climate activists, though, said it wasn't enough or fast enough. One representative from the Adirondacks was at the climate conference to raise the importance of the park in reducing carbon in the atmosphere. Kara Chapman reports. Aaron Mayer with the Adirondack Council calls the Adirondacks the lungs of America. It's one of the largest wilderness ecosystems in the lower 48 states. But he says the park and a lot of the country's other wilderness areas aren't taken seriously as frontline assets in the fight against climate change. We tend to focus heavily upon the manufacturing space of wind, solar and geothermal. But we are not focusing as ambitiously on nature-based solutions. He's talking about carbon sequestration, how big wilderness areas with their big forests, like the Adirondacks, absorb and trap the carbon dioxide that causes climate change. Mayor says that conversation tends to focus on the big wilderness areas in frontline countries. Those are places that, unlike the United States, haven't played a major role in causing climate change, but are bearing the brunt of it. Think Brazil, Western Africa, Indonesia. So a big reason Mayor traveled thousands of miles to Dubai was to get the word out about how wilderness areas in the United States do have a role to play in those nature-based solutions. 
we are signaling to our national government, not just the world, that part of that solution with regards to aggressive action to sequester and capture more carbon begins with a huge eco-asset like the Adirondacks. That means conserving more land, not cutting down trees. Mayor says he and people from other NGOs got together to strategize and share ideas in Dubai. He says that work gives him hope, even as the calls to move away from fossil fuels fell short of expectations. Mayor says the U.S., New York State, and organizations can still scale up their climate advocacy and action. We do have the technology and resources right now to really scale up and really engage as a nation and as a global leader. So not only do we need to scale up with regards to protecting places and unique places and spaces like the Adirondacks, but we also need to scale up the investment in wind, solar, uh, hydro, and geothermal. Mayor says he hopes the next presidential election will put the U.S. on the path to make more of those investments. But in the more immediate future, he's focused on New York's next budget, getting the state to see the Adirondacks as a place to train workers for the new clean energy economy. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio. The trial of a former Potsdam police officer who's accused of choking a suspect in custody will begin in February. North Country Now reports Matthew Seymour is facing a misdemeanor count of criminal obstruction of breathing. Prosecutors allege Seymour choked a suspect who was in custody at the police station this past April while he was on duty. He was fired later that month. Jefferson County's district attorney will try the case in Norfolk Town Court. St. Lawrence's County St. Lawrence's County DA asked for a special prosecutor to avoid a potential conflict of interest. Military veterans and people over the age of 60 will have access to a free shuttle service to run errands in the Glens Falls, Queensbury area. The Warren Hamilton County's Office for the Aging and Warren County's Veterans Services are working together on the new program. The buses will go to Warrensburg, Bolton, Chester, Horicon, Johnsburg, Thurman, Stony Creek, and Hague. The communities will have service twice a month on a schedule. Riders will be picked up and dropped off at their homes. Officials say the program will help seniors who don't have transportation options. A private contractor used to provide shuttle service, but it shut down in 2022. A new program will start on January 2nd. College students have a lot on their plates this time of year. Finals, papers, keeping grades up before vacation. St. Lawrence University in Canton has a way to help its students take a break from the stress. Catherine Wheeler reports from A Room Full of Dogs. College students sit in a circle on the floor. Black pants and pet hair be damned. Four dogs, Chomsky, Gracie, Skye, and Ivy roam around the room. They aren't doing anything special, but the students coo and awe over them anyway. St. Lawrence University hosts weekly pet de-stress hangs. Faculty and staff volunteer their own fuzzy critters to be the centers of attention. Wellness Education Director Laura Lavoie says petting a dog or cat can release some anxiety and lower stress. It serves as a nice transition to heading into the weekend and closing out their week to take some time to just kind of casually hang out with other people, get to play around with some dogs or some cats, and kind of feel like this reset. Nathan Tejeda is a regular, and regulars apparently bring their own lint roller. I bought one at the end of last year. I learned my lesson. Tejeda spreads out on the floor, petting two dogs at the same time, while also getting kisses from Ivy. She's called Little Miss Licks-A-Lot at home. Cute. Hey, not the face. 
you get everything else but the face. Many of the students who come to these meetups are missing their own pets at home. Across campus, deep in the science library, Kubu the cat is lured into laps with pieces of plain donut. While the dogs get together weekly, the de-stressed cats only grace campus with their presence occasionally. It makes them even more beloved. Miso Wilson is a senior. She taps the floor with her hands, begging Kubu to come to her, all while thinking about her own pets. It's very hard being away from home. I live in Colorado. That's where I'm from. That's where all my animals are. So this is really nice to just, you know, every week have somewhere to go and kind of get that love and affection. It's very just kind of like centering after a long week. Being around the animals draws out stories from all of the students about their pets at home. I thought my like cat was big. Oh, do you want to see? My mom sent me a picture last night. We just have like one. Back inside the dog room, Kira Royce's therapy dog, Gracie, lays on her back, paws up. Royce is a counselor, and she regularly brings Gracie to her office to help students. She says these hangouts help students relax and build community far from home. So a lot of times in the fall, we'll have a lot of first years coming in really nervous, and it gives them an automatic thing to bond with each other about and start talking about their homes and their own pets and families and where they're from. So it's a great way to connect and make a rapport. Despite the impending weekend, students are slow to leave their cuddly friends behind. Chomsky the dog is asked if he wants to move into a sorority house on campus. He declines, but promises to come back next semester, ready for more. Catherine Wheeler, North Country Public Radio in Canton. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, a new novel by Ottawa writer Kai Thomas in the Upper Country explores the Underground Railroad's little known history in a community of free black people in Canada. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Cloudy skies in Canton right now, but the Weather Service is predicting partly to mostly sunny skies for much of our region today. Highs in the 30s and light winds out of the southwest. And actually, looks like clear skies right through Friday. Sunshine tomorrow, Friday, highs in the upper 20s, low 30s, and then mostly cloudy skies on Saturday and Sunday. Just a reminder that uh, that flood warning remains in effect. Uh, uh, Scroon River at Riverbank until further notice. Also, flood warning continues for the Black River, uh, affecting communities in uh, Jefferson and Lewis counties. That's until tomorrow night. Right now in Canton, 27 degrees. In his debut novel, Ottawa writer Kai Thomas tells a story that centers on black and indigenous characters living in mid-19th century Ontario. Our book reviewer, Betsy Capus, talked with me about Thomas's novel, In the Upper Country. Todd, this novel begins with an elderly black woman who has recently arrived in Dunmore, a black community in southern Ontario. She's escaped from slavery in Kentucky 
but she's being pursued by a white man, a bounty hunter. When he tries to catch her, she kills him. Wow, that's quite an opening scene. Does anyone witness the murder? Yes, several people. Um, Dunmore is a community of free blacks, but they are surrounded by white Canadians, and this murder may mean disaster for the settlement. Why is that? As Lucinda, a black woman in Dunmore, says about Canada, Even here in the promised land, freedom was a frail thing, hollow at the core. There would be retaliation, beatings, killings, people thrown in jail. Emboldened by the mayhem, more bounty hunters would surely come. What would the promised land be then? So what do the people of Dunmore do to stop these retaliations? Lincinda writes for a black abolitionist newspaper, and the people of Dunmore ask her to go to jail, to the jail where the woman is, to interview the woman who committed the murder. They believe if she can get the full story and write it well, a white judge would be more sympathetic and perhaps not sentence the woman to death. So does that work? Uh, Todd, you're jumping ahead, and you know I won't tell you anyway. Much of this novel is stories told by Cash, the name of the elderly woman, to Lincinda. Cash tells of running away from slavery and meeting her husband, an indigenous man. This is when she was a young woman. Her first babies were a boy and a girl. Twins she named Dread and Dinah. These black children grew up in a Mohawk village, and both of them became warriors. And who were they fighting? They joined the British in the fight against the Americans in the War of 1812. Here's a scene from the journal of an educated black man who fought in a black battalion in that war. Dinah is looking for her brother, Dread, as the battle ends. I reloaded and then followed Dinah down into the field. By then, the Americans were in full retreat, and Dinah was looking at the faces of fallen warriors on the ground. I ran up to her and put my hand on her shoulder. She shrugged me off and continued scouring the bloody grounds. There was a grisly settlement.